So this morning, we have with us a number of people who, I have to tell you, I love them very, very much. Several of them prayed this morning. Both of the women that prayed this morning used to be uh, servants of the church. They used to work as the secretaries of this church, and now both married to pastors. Men in the PCA, my former denomination, um, the Dion's over here in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and the Halseys in, where are the Halseys? Oh, there you are, in Charleston, Mississippi, which is about an hour south of Memphis. And so if you know anybody in those areas, send them to their churches. They're godly men with godly wives. And we'll see about their children. Um, We also have Alan Amy Parker here. And uh, Alan Amy have been a wonderful gift to us as a church for many years. Now, I want to begin this morning. Yesterday, there was a man named Andy Halsey who gave a a message yesterday that only a few people heard, and his message was on the subject of um, of the Lord's Supper, and here is how he began his message. As I listened to him, I wondered why I didn't have him preach this morning. It was just so good, and here's how he began. He began with Matthew 26, 26 through 30, and then he, he, he said this. He said, the heading was Calvin's example in Geneva, and all of you know that we look back to the Reformation. The Reformation was 500 years ago. John Calvin was a pastor in the city of Geneva in Switzerland, and he and Luther were the two main leaders of the Reformation, he, Luther, and Knox, Okay. John Calvin's ministry in Geneva was defined by a controversy. That controversy got him kicked out of Geneva twice, and twice he came back. The controversy was the Lord's Supper. The issue was whether or not this table would be under the authority of the pastors of the church or whether it would be under the authority of the mayors of the city. All right, now that's simplification, but does this table belong to the church or does it belong to the civil magistrate, okay? And so here's how Andy began, Pastor Halsey. The elders in a certain church had found a certain man guilty of scandalous sin and barred him from the Lord's Supper, all right? The city's governing council, upon the man's appeal, overruled the elders and said the church could not prohibit him from the sacrament. The night before the pastor told the city's governing council he would oppose their judgment. He would uphold his elders' decision. He would refuse the elements to the open libertine. In other words, a man given to gross public sin. So note that the pastor says, I will submit to the elders and I will not allow him to this table. So it's not just the pastor willy-nilly making decisions about who comes to the table. That never happens. It's always the plurality of the elders. All right, you with me? I've been doing a lot of genealogy reading about my family. And I have all these Presbyterian pastors going back centuries in, in, in southeastern Pennsylvania. And one of them, if you go to old Presbyterian history books, and by the way, that's the reason I believe in the baptism of infants. It's in my blood. 
It's a joke, just a joke. One of them, one day, was serving the Lord's Supper, and his wife came to partake of the Lord's Supper, and he barred her from the table. All right, this is like my great-great-grandfather's sixth, all right? And the congregation was scandalized, and they went to the association of churches around, called the Presbytery, and they called them in, and they said, we won't have our pastor barring his wife from the Lord's table. And so the other pastors and elders from neighboring churches met with him, and they said, why did you do what you did? You can't do that. It has to be the elders that bar her from the table. And his response was, you don't know what my wife did. And shortly after that, he left the church. He was apparently out of the ministry for a couple of years. Then he was put back at another church at a distance where they didn't know anything about it. But then within six months, somebody came and spread the news about what he had done in his former church. And immediately, there was a fire in his church of people just furious at him from barring his his wife from the Lord's table. So that's all the story I knew until I found another source And then I found why he barred his wife from the Lord's table. The reason was that without her agreement, he had asked his son and his wife and their children to come live with them in the manse. In other words, in in, in the pastor's house. And so she was opposed to him asking their son to come live with them with his wife and children. And he was in favor, and so when she opposed it, They moved in, and he barred her from the Lord's table. Now, if you want to see an example of a pastor taking liberties and being authoritarian, that's the example. He ended up losing his second church over that. Okay? In other words, he wouldn't repent. We don't believe in pastors making decisions about who comes to the Lord's table. We believe in the elders, and that's why it says here, the governing council overruled the elders and said to the church, could not prohibit it from the sacrament. And so he said to the council, I'm going to uphold my elders' decision, and I will not give the elements, the wine, the bread, to the open libertine. His refusal to the council was in these words. Listen to these words, quote, I swear rather to die than to have the Lord's Supper defiled. I would rather be dead a hundred times than to commit such terrible mockery against Christ. Now, have you ever heard anything analogous to that in any Protestant church you've ever been in? And yet we call ourselves Protestants, you know? And you say, well, there's never been an open libertine. And I say, oh, really? (laughs) That was the problem, huh? And you say, well, yeah, but the town fathers never said that we had to. I say, no, more likely it was the elders. Listen, when you go back and read all the detailed records of the elders in Geneva, of their weekly meetings, what you find is that there is no new sin that every single sin you and I have committed and have been committed by our children were committed by the people of, of Geneva at the time of Calvin. Nothing changes, right? There's the sins that are in Scripture. All right? It's old as the hills and three times as dusty. And so what's going on today is that the Lord's Supper is taken for granted and we are not discerning 
the body and blood of our Lord. You, you, you remember, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, that we need to discern the body and blood of our Lord, right? And so let's read the scripture, 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm going to read a little bit more than I was planning on it, but I want you to get the context for Calvin, and then I will come back and read you more about Calvin. But I want you to feel the weight of it scripturally so you don't think Calvin's just a freak, okay? 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to begin with uh, verse 23. Okay, now I'll give you the context, which is that there was division at the Lord's table. It was supposed to be a united meal of, of love and conquered, and they were divided. Some were getting drunk at the Lord's table. The rich people had lots to drink, lots to eat. They were getting drunk, and the poor people had nothing, and Paul's livid. Okay, and in the middle of that, he, says, he sets it up, and then he says this. He says, verse 23, for I received from the Lord... That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, that's all I have up here, right? Yeah. But let me keep going. Listen to this. Therefore, therefore, okay, you've heard the words of institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord. Therefore, says the Apostle Paul, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. In the King James, that's translated discern, judge, discern, okay? For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, and everybody knows that means died. It's very clear, God judged the church in Corinth, by killing some and making others sick because they came to the table without discerning that this is the body and blood of Christ. And you say, oh, so in other words, you're Catholic. And I say, no, 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 no. It doesn't literally turn in to the body and blood of Christ. After all, Jesus was holding it out, and he doesn't say the wine is the blood. He says, this cup, anybody have a problem understanding? This cup is my blood, a new covenant of my blood. Not, not the wine, the cup. So if the Catholics are going to say that we blow it because we don't take it literally, I say, okay, well then the cup's the blood, not the wine. You see, no, 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 no. We have had centuries of controversy between Roman Catholics and Protestants over whether what you really need to get to heaven is to take the literal body and blood of Christ. And we say no. And isn't it about time that we go back to the reason that this is in Scripture instead of fighting the battles over consubstantiation and transubstantiation until we're blue in the face. And meanwhile, all kinds of libertines in every evangelical church in the country are coming to the Lord's table, and they're getting sick, and they're dying. 
And we're busy talking about, well, around and under and with and up above and hocus pocus and, and all this stuff. And I say, you know, I'm, I'm Protestant. I'm Presbyterian. I don't believe this turns into the body and blood. And you say, but the Roman Catholics do. And, and when that lifts up, I was here in Bloomington in 1992. And there was a man here who had just converted. He was a professor at a Reformed seminary, uh, the same seminary that Andy Halsey went to. He was a professor there. And he was describing to me, he was do, here doing graduate studies, he was describing how he just converted to Roman Catholicism. And he said that while he was professing at Reformed Seminary, he kept going to Mass at the Roman Catholic Church. And he said, then one day, this is his exact words, he said, one day, when the priest lifted up the host, I realized that it was the body and blood of Christ. And that was his meta-narrative. That's all he said. And what he was communicating to me was, and so I realized I had converted. And let me tell you, that is Roman Catholicism. And you just heard me say the body and blood of Christ, right? You all heard me say that. I don't object to calling it the body and blood of Christ because Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. But for us to waste our time talking about whether or not the Roman Catholics are right and this turning into the physical body, and then for centuries they did not let the people drink the blood of Christ because they were afraid that it would get spilled on the ground. For centuries! No, 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 no. It's time for us to move back to you, me, your wife, your children, our sickness, our death, our divisions, our congregation. And to look at this text in Scripture and to say, what does this have to say to us? People waste their lives dealing with Roman Catholicism. It's never been right. It isn't right today. It won't be right tomorrow. But there's more to the Christian life than repeating the battles of five centuries ago. And so today, how does it apply to us? These words in Scripture, how do they apply to me and to you? Now, here they are again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and the Roman Catholics say, yeah, they don't believe that it's literally the body. No, 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 no. Come on, come on, come on. In an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself. What for? Whether or not he believes it turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus? No, no, no. Whether he is an open liberty, whether he is a rebel against, whether he has true faith in Jesus Christ, whether he's among the elect, whether he lives by faith, whether his children and his wife looking at him would say he lives by faith. A man should examine himself. Why? Well, it says here, And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the... For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And again, that word judge is the word discern. If he doesn't judge it right, if he doesn't discern it. In other words, if he looks at this and does not understand, does not have perception, deep knowledge of the meaning of these elements and of what is at stake in them for his soul and the soul of everybody coming to this table, right? 
But if we judged ourselves rightly, verse 31, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. (laughs) And I always get a kick out of that. And why do I get a kick out of it? The reason I get a kick out of it is if you think about what the Apostle Paul has just said. He has just said, that's why some of you are sick and others sleep. Some of you are sick and others have died because you have profaned the table. You have not discerned the table. And so the application at the end of the sermon is what? So then, brothers and sisters, wait for one another. Now, come on, admit it. It seems ludicrous. (laughs) What? That's what's at stake? Just wait for one another? I don't even wait for my mother. When she feeds and cooks for me, I don't wait for her. And you're telling me people get sick and died? And then you tell me the application is so. If you don't want to get sick, I mean, isn't that a logical conclusion of it mentioning sick and die? I don't want to get sick and die. So then, brothers, wait for one another. Come on, look at what the text says and admit that it's wacko. I always think of this when we have people over for lunch. And am I impatient? And so Mary Lee wants everything ready before she eats. So typically, knowing I'm impatient, she'll put it all on the table and we'll quick pray and then we're free to eat, except she's still in the kitchen and she's, you know, doing the laundry and she's, and I'm sitting there and I'm hungry, you know. And then I always think of this where it says, and therefore, what? Wait for one another. And so this means that if this morning we had an inclination to divide the church down the middle and to have this half come to the table and this half wait for a couple of weeks, that would be a violation of the application of Paul, wouldn't it? Because those who have should wait for those who don't have, right? Do you understand And so the only thing that the Apostle Paul says at the end of this text is, so therefore, wait for one another. Now, once I've nailed this into your brain, the importance of that, all right, now I back up and I say, so what about open libertines coming to the table? If us not waiting for each other is a profanation, a failure to discern this table just waiting for each other, is is to profane the Lord's table, what does it mean for us to have an open libertine come to the Lord's table? Come on, people. You know that every church you've ever been in has been filled with open libertines who freely come to the table with nobody telling them no. Admit it. This is the characteristic of the evangelical church. There is no discipline. There's none.
And so Calvin says this, I swear rather to die than to have the Lord's Supper defiled. I would rather be dead a hundred times than to commit such terrible mockery against Christ. And so then, the next morning, he preaches his sermon, the prayers are offered, and Calvin comes down from the pulpit to take his place beside the elements at the communion table. The bread and wine were duly consecrated by him. He prayed over them. And he was now ready to distribute them to the communicants. And then, on a sudden, a rush was begun by the troublers in Israel in the direction of the communion table. This is an account of his biographer saying what happened. So in other words, the wicked rushed at the table. And they had full support of the civil magistrate, the mayors, the town councilmen. And they rushed at the table. And Calvin, he flung his arms around the sacramental vessels as if to protect them from sacrilege while his voice rang through the building. And here's what John Calvin said. He said this, he said, these hands you may crush, these harms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. And after this, says Beza, who was alive at the time, Calvin's first biography, he says, quote, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with a profound silence and under solemn awe in all present, as if the deity himself had been visible among them. You remember a couple days ago when I was preaching. You remember I said that the way we plant churches today is with our eyeglass frames? Remember that? And I said the way that we get our flash mobs is we have the right eyeglasses. And, you know, I thought it was microbrew. But they tell me that it's craft. And so I'm just going to call it macrame beer from now on. Because, you know, mac macrame is such high class. It's such an art. We're so addicted to being hip that if I say microbrew instead of craft, I have multiple people come to me and tell me that I'm showing, that I'm showing my age. So what do I have to do? Put my earring back in? Come on, you guys. We're so pathetic today. And we read about Calvin and we wish we could have been there and we lay all kinds of garlands on his tomb. And if we had a pastor who put his arms around the table and said no to the elders, he would be gone yesterday. You know, I said, let's be done with parachurch the other night, right? A lot of people were angry. They told me they were, right? And I say, you know something? I wish that I could be a pastor and say God's yes without saying his no. But I don't find it in the Bible. I don't find the Apostle Paul doing it here with the Corinthians. 
One guy said to me, you know, they always say this, postmodern men, they always say, you know, you generalize, you know? And I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I try to say, well, you know, generalizations are generally true. That's why we have them. Stereotypes are normally correct. That's why they worm the... And then I say, you know, the whole empirical method is generalization. <laughs> you know? And hypothesis. And then you test it. And if they really back me into a corner, then what I say is, well, you know... The Holy Spirit says all Cretans are liars, and this testimony is true. Listen, the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Jesus. And when you come and take part of this supper, and you don't wait for others, then you should hear in your ear ringing the warning of the Apostle Paul, this is why some are sick and others asleep. And you should think who you're divided with in the church, right? Right? Who you don't like, right? Who you, who, yesterday I was in a talk, uh, a message, and there was just this excellent description. It was, again, it was, it was the Halsey. Where's the Halsey? There's the Halsey. And he was going on about all the ways that we are divided from other Christians. And I mean, he nailed every single one. It was beautiful. You know, we just have all these ways. And one of the ones he said is, look, if you need to go and get right with someone, don't go to them and tell them everything they did wrong. And so one time in the Lord's Supper, I heard Jesus saying, you know, leave your gift at the altar and go get right with the other people. And so I said, you know, we ought to do that sometime. Let's do it this morning. So we all stood up and we all went and, and, and got right. And there was one guy who went and got right with my wife. And do you know how he got right with my wife? He went to her and explained how angry he had been with her for so long because of something she did that she was absolutely right to do. And she, she had his number and she was protecting her daughter from that man. Right? So if it's wrong to not wait for one another, if it's wrong to get drunk, those of us who are rich while the poor have nothing to drink, how much more wrong is it for us to be bitter against one another, for us to be resentful against our mother, against our husband? Now, I'm, I know that you're all with me. I know it. Because no, but none of us can deny that we have resentment against other people that are here, right? I mean, those of you who are visitors, you probably don't, but you can think back to your home church, and there are people that you really do have a struggle with, right? And typically the struggles are in our homes because they're the ones we sleep and eat with, right? And so the offense in our homes is probably the largest issue most of us have to deal with, to be united with our wives. It's hard. It is work, right? Um, with our husbands, not you, because he's perfect, but, yeah, yeah, I just thought, I'm sorry, I always do this, I gotta back up, okay, and so, um, in the church today, what we have is we have a de-escalation 
of the office of the keys. Remember how we talked about Jesus gave the office of the keys, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So if you can see John Calvin with his hands around the table, picture the key. He has the key and he's locking it, right? And so today we live in the post-Rodney King day. And Rodney King, those of us who are a certain age, is infamous for saying, can't we all get along? And that's as deep as ethics go in America today. That's it. Can't we all get along? And so elders, being Americans, instead of Christians, say, can't we all get along? And so elders cultivate an ignorance of the condition of their congregation. Cultivate an ignorance. They cultivate a lack of discernment at the table. Cultivate. And you say, oh, it's not really that bad. They're just ditz brains. They're naive. And I say, what is the book of Proverbs but one huge screed against naivete? The whole book of Proverbs says naivete is a sin. Right? Isn't that what the book of Proverbs is? And then what about Hebrews where it says those who by hard work have gotten discernment? And Jesus, who says, you know how to read the clouds, and yet you don't examine the times? And so Paul looks at the Corinthians. He's not even there. And he sees, you know what I spend my life doing is telling men and women to open their mouths and say what they see. (laughs) That's all a counselor does. He listens to what they say and then says, this is what you just say. And they say, oh, I didn't say that. And you say, well, actually, you did. Evidence A, evidence B, evidence C. Oh, well, you know, you're right. And you knew that, didn't you? Well, yeah, I actually did. But it's not polite to say those things. I say, well, you just said it. I heard you, so, so you've said it. So now what are you going to do about it? And that's a counselor, right, Stephen? That's all a counselor does. He doesn't have insights that you don't have. He listens to your insights and repeats them back to you. Okay? Everybody knows the libertines that come to the Lord's Supper at every church in the country. And if you say, well, he, then Tim got mad, angry. That's one of, the, one of the guys said to me this weekend. You were mad. You were angry. I said, I wasn't angry. I wasn't mad. I'm not angry. I'm not mad. I'm, I'm calm. Calm. Cool as a cucumber. Can't we all get along? Do you think the Apostle Paul was mad? What do you think he felt emotionally when he said, that's why some of you are sick and others asleep? Okay, listen. The entire Church of America has cultivated a lack of discernment. The discernment starts in the way they discipline their children. They don't want to see. And so they don't see. And when their wife points it out to them, they tell her she's being judgmental. 
and they tell her, stop controlling the children. And when the wife doesn't see, the husband drinks beer. It's the perfect pair. And then when they're ready to get married, they don't see the character of the person that their beautiful daughter is going to marry. Why? Because their pastor never saw anything, so why should they? And nobody's ever warned them away from the Lord. They've never even heard of their elders telling somebody. They can't even conceive of a pastor putting his arms around the table and saying, I'd rather die. I mean, they've never met a pastor like that. You know, their pastor has eyeglasses. I do too. Where are my eyeglasses? I don't know where they went to. Huh. Anyhow. It is the nature of sacraments to divide. The sacraments were designed by God to divide between the people who belong to God and the people who don't. And when I look into this congregation right now, I see souls whose children have rejected Jesus Christ. And this sacrament is doing what it's intended to do. It is intended to separate. And when you come to this, you're supposed to divide yourself. That's what self-examination is. Self-examination is to look inside of yourself and to see your faith and your faithlessness. And then you don't have to be judged by the elders and by the judgment seat of Christ because you've judged yourself. That's what it said. Okay? And so sacraments are these wonderful opportunities we have to see the distinctions that God has put at the foundation of the universe before it was created. Remember David yesterday saying that before the universe was created... God had chosen his people, and he had appointed works for them. And so the sacrament is intended to divide, but it's intended to divide as God, the Holy Spirit, divides in the work of men. It's not intended to divide according to your preference, your sin, your bitterness, your lust, your envy, your... You know, that's a sinful division. The proper division is that this divides between those who belong to God and worldlings who have rejected the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the reason Calvin would say, my blood means nothing to me. The blood of Jesus Christ means everything to me, and I'll die to protect it. Right? Right? And so... All of you need to repent of your cultivation of the absence of discernment in your life. Because, you know, I, I think I told some of you this yesterday, but I'm in this private email list of a bunch of church leaders who are 
I think I told you this, but I'm going to tell it again. And, and they're working to remove from the church a bad doctrine. And, and so I'm, I'm in the list. And, and in the list, they were saying, now we, not, we need to be careful not to judge the motives of the people who are promoting this heresy. And they just kept saying to each other, yeah, I agree with you. We shouldn't judge the motives. And then the first guy said, did I just say we shouldn't judge the motives? And the second guy said, yeah, you just said that's an important point. The first guy said, well, I feel strongly we shouldn't judge the motives. And the second guy said, yeah, that's something that I just think is so important. And back and forth it went. I took no part in the whole thing. I was just watching. I hadn't written anything in weeks. But then I wrote something. Because one of the guys said, now that I've gotten done saying that we shouldn't judge the motives of anybody, I'm going to sit back and, and I'm no longer a Baptist, and so I'm going to drink wine. Right? And, and the second guy said, well, I hear you saying that you kind of enjoy the privilege you have as a Presbyterian now. And then I wrote, and I said, how dare you claim that you know the motives in what he wrote? You know, what gives him the right to look at the man's heart? He doesn't know if the guy wrote that because he, he was wanting to show his superiority and being able to do alcohol with a Baptist watching. You know, it was such an evil Im, Im, imputing of motives. And then I said, as a matter of fact, um, I said, that the book of Proverbs says that all a man's motives seem right in his own eyes, but the Lord searches his heart. And I said, what this means is that none of us should ever try to do self-examination because we're going to fail. We not only can't see other people's motives, we can't see our own motives, right? Because all of our ways seem right to us, right? And isn't that true of me? And isn't it true of you? Yeah, your motives seem right, right? And the Bible says that that's sin. And so not only can we not judge each other's motives, but we can't judge our own motives. And so Paul here, where he says, let a man examine himself, is sinful. Because he's telling us to impute motives to ourselves. Now, why am I going on about this? I'm going on about this because there's no end of the ways that we're squirrely in refusing to do what God has commanded, which is let a man examine himself. And then it says, so that he will not have to be judged. Let a man judge himself so he won't have to be judged. And you know that means that if he fails in his judgment, then the elders judge him because they hold the keys. And then if they fail... What happens? There is nothing protecting you from the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that? If you have yourself in a church where there is no exhortation to examine yourself, where everybody's falling all over themselves saying, don't ever impute motives. You don't know the man's heart. What's the chance if they tell you never to question the motives of your son when he's lying about what time he got in last night because you stayed awake and you heard him. And then you think, well, for some reason he had a flat tire or something and it had nothing to do with the girlfriend he's petting with. You're a worthless parent. 
And then you want your elders to be like that? Well, it didn't have anything to do with the woman. It was just he got a flat tire, I bet. But I'm not going to ask him. And then you don't impute motives. You never question. The Apostle Paul does it all the time. Every single verse of Scripture talks about the motives of our sin. But we don't do it because why? You remember what I told you. I read this profile of a boxing trainer in in New Jersey, outside of New York, right? And what he said is the first thing he has to teach every boxer is when you get in that ring, there's going to be this little voice that comes to you, and the little voice says, if I don't punch him hard, he won't punch me hard. And I have to completely obliterate that lie in his brain if he's ever going to learn how to box. (laughs) And that's what our churches are today. If I don't punch them hard, they won't punch. And so I'm not going to impute motives to any, and maybe they won't impute motives to me. And so it's a scheme, you know. We don't impute motives, and then they don't impute motives, and then we don't do self-examination because all a man's ways seem right in his own eyes, right? And then the elders don't do it because if if the elders do it, then, (laughs) I mean... (laughs) (laughs) How could you have a flash mob if the elders are going around discerning? (laughs) Doesn't work, you know? And then, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And we get before the judgment seat of God, and every single authority in our lives has utterly failed us. And it's a conspiracy of silence. And then we... We read 1 Corinthians 11. We hear it every single time we have the Lord's Supper. We hear it, you know. And how can we hear it and read it and know it and have absolutely no concern about the churches we're in where there is no imputing of motives, there is no self-examination, there is no preaching with authority. And there's no fencing of the table. And there's no elders ever presenting any roadblocks at any point for anybody. And it's fine because nobody sees the judgment seat of God. And I'm going to do something my brother David told me not to do. Are you ready for this? So David's here and David says, Tim, don't ever write about Tim Keller. Because every time you do it, we lose people on the block. And so... The most popular man in the country today as a pastor. More books sold, more more iUniversity, iTunes. You know, I I have a guest to my house, and he comes in my kitchen and starts quoting Tim Keller to me. He's everywhere, right? And so there's no imputing of motives. Paul does it. There's no self-examination, Paul commands it. There's no power of the keys, our Lord explicitly commanded it. There's nothing. And then Tim Keller goes public and he says that hell is just simply the choices you've made in life. You want hell. And so even hell becomes self-determination. Everything to postmoderns is narcissism. Even hell. (laughs) Listen, hell is not your choice. Hell is God's choice. And those who go to hell 
forevermore will give glory to the holiness and justice of God. And not one person there will have any thought of how proud they are of their self-determination. Because the one thing we know from Jesus is they will be pleading for somebody to just give them a drop of water on their tongue. And do you know that John Calvin said that that was not a story, a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but that was an actual thing that Jesus knew about because he came from there to here. And he says the reason is because Lazarus is named. And in other parables, there's no name. And so what we know from our Lord is that the worm never dies, the fire is never quenched, it's a bottomless pit, And we know that those who are there are pleading for a drop of water on their tongue and that they are so in such suffering that they ask somebody to be sent back to their loved ones to warn them. And what does Tim Keller tell us? Well, hell is just the place that that you go because you want to... I mean, it's it's just the... it's It's your choice. And, you know... If I had to design a message that would perfectly suit narcissists, it would be that hell is your choice. Because then you could even make a principle out of hell. I mean, do you really think that Stephen Gould would not choose hell? (laughs) And so man is master of his fate. You think about your daughters. You think about your loved ones who have turned their backs on the blood of Jesus Christ. And you ask yourself whether they will choose hell. And you know the answer is yes, right? I mean, if you look with eyes to see at your loved ones who have turned from Christ, it's very clear why they do it, right? They love their sin. And they hate Jesus. They would never say that. Right? Although those guys that beat up the preacher in Seattle at the gay parade, they almost said it, right? Listen, the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Violations of this meal are of the utmost seriousness. Because the gift is precious. Okay? And that's what you're going to find your whole life, is that God's most precious gifts have the greatest danger attached to them. And so if you love the blood of Jesus, you must guard this table. And it must start with you examining yourself because then you won't have to be judged. And when you examine yourself, you should know that the requirement of the Lord for this table is that you acknowledge your sin. And so if a libertine, somebody that's giving himself to sexual immorality and drunkenness, if a libertine comes to this table without examining himself, the Lord will judge him. The elders will judge him in a biblical church. The pastor in his preaching will have judged him without being personal. You know what I'm saying? 
Um, and so he needs to judge himself. He needs to examine himself. He needs to discern the body and blood of Jesus Christ, to discern it. And then once we discern it, we realize how precious it is. And then the minute we realize how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is, the body of Christ, then it's all level, right? There's nobody up above and nobody belief, but we're, we're Christians under the cross, and it is our life. And those who despise it are ejected, right? And that's not because any of us are judgmental or divisive or anything. It's because we love Jesus. And we cannot have fellowship with darkness. <laughs> and it's not our decision. It's not their decision. It's the choice of God. Let me close by reading... I want to make one other point before I'm done. Um, And that is that uh, one of the characteristics of our age is a rejection of God's no, of his law, and of hell. Everything's softened. We all know that, right? Well, everybody just agree with me. Everything about Christian faith is being softened. One of the ways it's being softened is that an awful lot of preachers with eyeglasses say that Jesus' death is divine child abuse, that the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement is divine child abuse. And so what they do is they turn Jesus into a model man, that if we look at him and we try to be like Jesus, then we, you know, the meta-narrative of turning the other cheek and all that stuff that Jesus did, that then we we transcend our sort of lowly lives and and, and become like him and, and that that's sort of Christianity. And then they point to those who speak of blood and they say, well, those people have a doctrine of divine child abuse, as if God was wrathful, as if God is angry and required his son to die. Divine child abuse. Now, do you understand that? Do you understand how perverse postmoderns would say that? They can't conceive of God being wrathful. Okay. And so, even if you've never heard the expression, you know that people that reject fatherhood, that reject discipline, that reject God's no, that say that hell is just a choice, you know that these people are constitutionally opposed to the wrath of God. Right? You got that in you. I want to point one thing out, and then we'll be done. I want to point out to you that one of the best ways to understand Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a riot of blood. Okay? And I know you've never thought of it that way, and it's not original with me. But would you please see that the ordering theme of Scripture is God's holiness and God's wrath against sin and the love of God the Father which sent the blood of his Son to cleanse us from sin. And if I tell you that Spurgeon said that every single text of the Old Testament, you should find the shortest path to Jesus Christ, right? It makes sense, right? But you've never thought of it maybe in terms of blood. Yeah, you've thought of the Passover lamb and the door on the lintel, right? But listen to this. Think 
immediately after the fall, what does God do? Immediately he kills animals. He sheds the blood of animals so that he takes their skin and he clothes the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Think about it. And then you go forward, and when the covenant is made with Abraham, what is the sign of the covenant? The sign of the covenant is blood. How do you circumcise a little infant? You take a knife. Remember that? A knife. Blood. And then you have this unbelievable exchange between... um, between Moses and his wife. We read in Exodus 4, 25 to 26, his wife was named Zipporah, and she took a flint, so an obsidian knife, you know. She took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he, God was going to kill Moses for not doing it. And so he, God, let him, Moses, alone because his wife cut it off through it. She circumcised her son. And then it repeats itself. At that time, she said to Moses, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And so if you go forward and you look at Moses, you look at the tabernacle, you look at the sacrificial system in the temple, it's a riot of blood. Right? Then when John the Baptist sees our Lord, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The blood of the Lamb. The death angel passed over their houses because there was blood. And then we read here, we read in Hebrews chapter 9, Therefore even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, He took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, what many almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And then this wonderful statement, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness listen God is holy and he demands that his people are holy and that demand is such a serious demand that he loved us by sending his son to die and pour his blood out to wash you and me. And so when we come to this table, it is precious. It is holy. 
and we come to be washed anew. Day after day, week after week, month after month. And so I want to end by reading some of the wonderful fathers of the church, what they've written of their love for the blood. This was Rita Cuffey. Some of you remember Rita. This was her favorite. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Come on with me. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And can it be that I should gain an interest in? And what I always sing (laughs) is I always sing my Savior's blood. The words are the Savior's blood. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His oath, his covenant, his Support me in the whelming flood. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And then, uh, Count Vaughn. Zinzendorf. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my aid. Lord, I believe. Thy precious blood, which at the mercy seat of God forever doth for sinners plead, for me, e'en for my soul, was shed. Is that your testimony? Listen, is that your testimony? Come on. What are you going to do when you come before God? You're going to sit there with your mouth? You you know, John Dunn said, here at the door I tune my lips that what I may do there I do here before. And, and all of you do here before what, what you're going to do there. It says what about there? It says our lips are going to be unsealed. We're going we're to be a part of the choir of heaven. And then here we're all repressed. I was sitting thinking as I read these lyrics. <laughs> when it talked about being dressed, it being our clothing. I won't do it. But, but what I was thinking about doing was just taking this and just throwing. You know, just 
sometimes as a preacher, you just want, you know, you want something to get us out of our bondage to being proper and clean. You're not clean. You're not clean. You're filthy. And so how about if I just take all of this, and instead of us drinking it today, I just throw it all over you. You know? I'm not going to do it. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen, you come and you do it. Because it'll be hard for you to do it. It'll be easy for me to do it. You know what I'm saying? If you were to look here, you'd see a bunch of the blood of Jesus on the floor. And it says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile is he, Washed all my sins away, dear dying lamb. Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Listen, there's no way to see the blood of Jesus in the sacrament without fencing the table. And that fencing begins between you and your father and your mother, and your son, and your daughter, and your husband. And I did not order the way you people were sitting here. And it's horrible. But the sacraments divide. And God was not surprised and the, the world in eternity will be separated between those who are washed in the blood of Jesus and have no hope. And those who will not. And it's not because they choose hell. It's because they choose sin. So, let's live by faith. How are we a witness in the world? We're a witness in the world by walking around, stand up, and let everybody see you. Take off your coat. Uh, anyhow, turn around and open up the front of your coat. See him? He's stained with the blood. And this is the nature of Christians. And it will divide our family. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless he hate his father and his mother and his brother and his sister and even his wife. You remember Jesus said that. 
And so this is the household of faith. This is the family of God. This is the unity. And so, my brothers and sisters, now you all know what I'm going to say right now, don't you? So, my brothers and sisters, when you come to the table, wait for one another. Isn't that funny? Admit it. It seems such a trivial application of the heavy things that preceded it. And don't postmoderns specialize in irony? <laughs> you know? Okay.